to another episode of Pocket Wall Talks. I'm Brad, your host. Uh, today we got a fill-in special guest, Bill. Say hi, Bill. Hello, happy to be here. And over at Controls is our producer, Devin. Me as always, they're useless without me. Yes, we, we need to be reminded of that frequently. They don't know how to do any of this shit. I am uh, the brains. So today we're going to do a little history lesson. Uh, looking at the history of the American criminal jury, How's it, how does it we came to be that um, our current system is in place, how it's morphed over time, and a little bit about where it started, why uh, we decided people off the street should um, be the person that decides whether somebody's guilty or innocent. So There's nothing that really glistens my gourd more than history. Like That shit just really gets me going. Well, then good. You should contribute well today. I'm expe- you just said your expectations are really high. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's what I use on pickup dates as I start talking about the war of, you know, 1783 and all of that shit in the Civil War and Napoleon. Anti-federalists. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Chicks dig that. Yep. Well, that Napoleon, Dynamite, the, and all of them. Yep. Explains a lot to do with uh, your lack of success in that world. Let's start off with uh, our first uh, area we're going to take a look at, which is uh, the colonial days. Way back when, before we had a constitution, um, it was very uh, individualized between the different colonies. Um, the England colony, for, the England colonies, for example, um, Rhode Island continue, routinely used criminal juries on offenses that were labeled as more serious than drunkenness. So, like, if it was just like drunk was the bar of what, well, like, drunkenness isn't being drunk in public. Like acting an ass or what? So, yeah, if you were charged with what I guess would be modern day today, a public intox, uh, you might not have a jury trial to decide whether or not you were guilty. But anything more serious than that, and you were going to get – you would get a, a jury. And as, as we'll talk about over uh, over this podcast, um, the original design was that juries would be used to determine whether or not – Somebody committed a crime. I mean, imagine when they first did this shit, and there's a guy that's drunk, and they're like, why do we need a trial for this? I mean, Mary saw him drunk. George saw him drunk. Frederick saw him drunk. The guy was fucking drunk. Like, Yeah, so that if it was just drunkenness, they just punished him, I guess. He picked a fight with a goat. Uh, Carl's drunk. Just put him in jail for a couple of days. He'll be fine. <laughs> He'll sleep it off. Would they even have a jail then? What'd they do? Would they just like make him sit in a tree for four days? <laughs> Make them stand in like ankle deep water for thirty six hours. Yeah, so the the that was where sort of the extreme of use of juries was back in those days. The Rhode Island colony was was sort of on top of it. Uh, then you had the New Haven colony. The magistrates were used and basically replaced the English juries with what they called the judici- judicial laws of God, um, basically doing away with juries until 1665. So the New Haven area of uh, uh, the colonies was completely contrasted to Rhode Island where they were doing juries all the time. New Haven was having the magistrates basically carve out what was guilty, what was not guilty, and who did crimes. Basically, like, from Protestant Christian Christianity laws, like what the Bible would say? Absolutely. And so what would be in today's... um, modern world, I guess, uh, bench trials or judicial trials. But it was just more based on the good book instead of, you know, an actual enacted and codified code of laws. I mean, I guess you could say it was if it was in the good book, but 
not necessarily uh, how it is today. Yeah, and and what uh, you know you, that that sort of explains the history of where uh, even in some courts it's still today they'll use a Bible when they're swearing in a witness. There was a lot of the laws of God back in, in those days were uh, utilized in the English colonies. Um, most of the New England colonies used juries on felony cases. So if it was a serious felony case, uh, then most of the time there would be juries. Excluded from that were some property crimes, things like theft, things of that nature. But oddly enough, they did do juries on what were the crimes of adultery, something Devin has a lot of experience with, public masturbation. Oh, yeah, all the time. I love when I get caught, too. Cursing parents. That was uh, one of the cases they would try to jury. Can you imagine? Um, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your service today. We're going to have you uh, sit in jury of this uh, young gentleman who cursed at his parents, has been alleged to have cursed at his parents last week. I mean, it would really just be one of those he said, she said, wouldn't it, where the parents are saying that he did this and the kids saying he didn't. And, of course, the parents are always going to win. Yeah, I mean. I think, I think back then pretty much everything was he said, she said. I mean, they yeah. had a whole lot other than, than witness testimony. You don't think there was a CSI? No, no CSI effect. Colonial no. days out doing some uh, DNA. Um, yeah. So that shows goes to show you sort of in our early foundation, prior to even the constitutional days, they were using juries pretty regularly on something as minor as a, a kid cussing at a parent. Keep in mind, though, that... Jury trials, that wasn't something that was automatically founded once the colonies were founded in America. It was actually something that we took over from um, our British ancestry and the people that came from the British and the UK in particular. They did a similar sort of thing where, you know, the higher up lords and ladies and statesmen, they would have um, basically uh, what would appear to be a jury trial in front of them. But the king or a fill-in for the king or someone that was appointed power at the time would always have the final say. Um, he could be persuaded by the people, you know, the statesmen beside him. There was, you know, people specifically put in place to kind of uh, prosecute these people, enact sort of punishments upon them, ranging from, you know, they could be a legitimate jail time to it could be whippings or it could be even beheading. But this wasn't something that was entirely just new that they built these colonies and decided that they were going to have a whole new series of um, trials and how to see if someone was actually guilty. This is a bit of remnants from um, the colonial and, you know, our British slash UK past. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, outside of the New England uh, territories, um, Pennsylvania, West, West Jersey, as it was referred to back in those days, and North Carolina were regular users of the criminal jury process, uh, while Maryland, uh, New Netherland, and Virginia uh, rarely, rarely used juries. All in the pre or in the colonial pre-constitutional days. Uh, just to give a little shout out, uh, a lot of what we're talking about today, my research was pulled from the uh, University of Chicago Law School. Um, uh, Law Review, titled A Brief History of the Criminal Jury in the United States. It was written by Albert Osler and Andrew Deese. Wanted to give them a little love for uh, really studying something that there's very little out there about. So was, this was a really an interesting um, podcast to prepare for to see where this where this all started. Uh, we'll next, jump into the when the constitutionals come at uh, the constitutional the constitutions coming about. Uh, the Sixth Amendment was. Um, what guaranteed 
every federal criminal defendant the right to a jury trial. But back even before then, the first Continental Congress uh, had a Declaration of Rights in 1774, and it had as one of its enumerated rights the right to a jury trial. And that's two years before America was even its own individual country. And, of course, the war between Britain was kind of heating up, and we were kind of on France's side at the time. But even before we were, you know, actually considered our own individual country, we were already kind of um, dissenting from the normal ways that the king of England and the way that they would do things, that we had, um, you know, our Declaration of Rights that everybody had and the right to a jury trial Whereas beforehand, the king could just, you know, declare that this person is going to be be beheaded for, you know, assuming that his wife had been committing adultery or whatever it may be, and that's what would happen. It wasn't a single man's rule of law. And so in uh, 1789 is when the original um, constitution was out there. It did include a requirement that all crimes be tried by jury except for uh, impeachment. And as I mentioned before, in 1791, that's where the federal right, so federal uh, criminal, federal guarantee to having a trial by jury was enumerated. Twelve states prior to uh, the the federal constitution had enacted written constitutions. Then, and the only right that was unanimous was between all 12 states was the criminal defendant having a right to jury trial. So if you think about... Uh, pre-constitutional days, you've got these brand new colonies that are starting their own constitutions. And they're not even very well connected either. Like you have to think that a lot of these were uh, people from indi- like different countries. You know, some were from France, some were from Spain, some were from England. So the fact that they wanted everyone to have sort of rights and to have a due process, despite it being differentiating between the colonies, they all had a similar idea in one way or another how they wanted people to be declared if they were guilty or not and how they would weigh evidence against them. They, they were strongly against, you know, the one man word of law and having one man have control and basically have a kingly like structure. Well, and if you think of the history of our country, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, they were, that's what people fought and shed blood over was to avoid that exact situation. So did they know exactly what they wanted? No. But did they know they didn't want that authoritarian single-minded control, yes, yes. And Brad, you said earlier that the original Constitution provided that all crimes were to be tried by jury except for impeachment. So that was in 1789. That was everything. So everything used to go to jury trial anytime a crime was alleged? Yeah, so that that's that was the original thought process. It didn't matter what how serious or not serious it was. I mean, you can see the, the cursing of a parent. Uh, they firmly believed that if the government was going to hold somebody criminally responsible, then it needed to be by a jury. A lot of these crimes, you have to think, because they a lot of people, the reason why they came to the colonies and established colonies was for religious freedom. So you have to think that a lot of these laws that they had were related to a Bible of some sort or another and breaking any of those foundational rules that they had set in place for themselves. And even though it might sound absurd that every single infraction or rule breaking whether they had made it or whether it was in the Bible itself, have a jury trial. Population wasn't super big then. And so despite what's kind of like what seems to be a big number on paper, it honestly probably wasn't something that happened that often um, or at least something that was like constantly happening. 
Yeah, because my mind immediately went to uh, what a pain in the ass as a lawyer if every <laughs> single one of your cases was a jury trial. Yeah, and we'll talk about that, how the, how the jury trial developed and has morphed over time to what is much more of a plea-oriented um, criminal justice system. Where this right was really sort of uh, shown is at its level of importance, during the Constitutional Convention, uh, you had the Federalists, you had the Anti-Federalists, who were at each other's throats, both literally and figuratively, over everything. They had completely different point of views, uh, lots of back and forth going over um, what to include in a, in a constitution, what shouldn't be included in the constitution. And one thing that was pretty common was that they could agree that there needed to be a right to, right to a trial by jury. Uh, Alexander Hamilton is quoted from the time saying, the friends and adversaries of the plan of the plan of the plan of the convention, if they agree in nothing else, they concur at least in the value they set upon the trial by jury. So, as I, I mean, everybody knows the level which Alexander Hamilton was involved in um, the founding documents of our country. He was quoted all the way back in that time to saying that, yes, the trial by jury is something that we are all going to be um, putting the highest degree of importance on, regardless of which side of the political aisle. So we're going to jump into a little bit next about how the American juries sort of looked starting in the very early days of America, post-constitutional. As you might already perceive, the implication of a jury or how a jury was constructed was reflecting of how time was at that time. So every single state in the Union at that time limited juries to men. Every state except Vermont restricted jury service to property owners or taxpayers. And three states only allowed whites to serve. And Maryland, interestingly enough, disqualified atheists. Which is really interesting because by then the Constitution was ratified by all states. And so, you know, freedom of religion is a huge thing in that. Yet you see so many times where the states didn't exactly... uh, Follow that to a T, especially disqualifying atheists. Yeah, so you, you think of, uh, I guess, freedom of religion means you have a freedom to choose a religion, but not no religion. <laughs> I guess that's why they, they would, uh, that's how Maryland would answer that back in 1791. You have a freedom to religion, but not to no religion. I mean, our atheists could be argued that it's not that you're arguing that you don't have a religion. It's that you're arguing that religion doesn't exist. Sure. And so... That shows, shows you sort of what they were looking at back in those days. I and mean, how, how do you also determine that, too? I don't know. Do you, I guess you ask every individual uh, juror, do you have some, some belief in some religion? I guess I whenever they're talking about God, one of them is just like, fuck that guy. <laughs> or, yeah, they're just like, uh, I really kind of want to avoid jury service, so I'm an atheist. That was the, that, See ya. That was my out. The old colonial way to get yeah. out of jury was yep. saying I'm an atheist. Sorry, Says guys, Jesus I'm an atheist. Jesus didn't resurrect, and everybody gasps. Yeah. <gasps> <laughs> yeah, I'm going back to the farm. So, yeah. So Enjoy. in 1789, the Federal Judiciary Act left the determination of juror, juror qualifications to the states. That was very common back then, very much so. The state rights before a lot of federal powers had started taking over. Uh, they allowed a lot of things to, 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 to the states. And that mostly reflected the same qualifications to vote. So whatever qualification there was in each state to be a voter, 
you also had to have that same qualification if you wanted to serve as a um, juror. So one of the interesting, though, is many of the states had an additional requirement that you be intelligent and of good character. I like the guy who ever made that. You could just think of him thinking in a room one day, like they must have had a really bad jury trial with a bunch of just fucking dumbasses. And he's like, man, we need to have some people that aren't like, that aren't clowns. Yeah, aren't fucking morons. Like, we need to not have Jim, who's fucking his sister, in here talking about an incest charge against this person because they're going to be, they're going to find him not guilty and then they're going to go fuck their sisters together. We need someone who likes, kind of knows how to do math on a educa- on an on a, uh, elementary level. Yeah, they get, uh, can you think of how they judged intelligence back in those days? Of Probably based on how you speak, how you talk. You're not smart enough to... Uh, you, you, you can't put a horseshoe on a, a horse. You're not going to be able to be on a jury. Well, you I would think it's more of like linguistics. linguistics. Think of how they like spoke back then and how like the way you spoke was just a huge judge of character and how intelligent you are and how long it would take them to say something that was honestly very small and inconse- inconsequential just because they use so many broad terms. And it just... That, that's probably how they gauged it, is if someone was, like, straight to the point, they were probably gauged as being less intelligent than as someone who put in a big bunch of fancy words and, you know, the type to wear a fake white wig and stockings. And so the, the, I, I, the obvious impact on these qualifications was that you didn't really get a jury of your peers necessarily, especially if you were any type of uh, minority or, or female, because in many states you had unpropertied, White men, so men, white men that didn't own property, African Americans of either sex, and women were not allowed to serve on juries until they had eventually gained the right to vote. So, again, in reflecting the state's individual voting laws, if you didn't have the right to vote, which were basically everybody that weren't propertyed white men, then you also didn't get to serve on a jury. And that issue of having to own property still survived all the way up to 1967 and New York, you had to have at least $250 of property holdings to be able to serve on a jury. Now, of course, since the 1900s, that's just going to be like a car, something like that could be good enough. Some belongings you had in your house, but you know, in the late 1700s, early 1800s, this was still pretty wealthy men. I mean, even having $250 in that age, was a considerable amount of money. So you would think that despite being wanting to be different than how it was in England, how it was just a bunch of rich statesmen, you know, declaring the crimes of someone, when it first started out, it wasn't 100% different. There just wasn't one person who had, you know, the final say and could outright just execute these people. Um, but it was still people that had, like, decent amount of money, high-standing um, things that, you know, some of these poor people and farmers couldn't get, like having an intelligence, able to have good character, good standing in the community. So, you know, it was still it was still people that could be argued were pretty disconnected from their communities that they would be arguing against. Of course, in the initial colonies, most of these people know each other. I mean, you know, 300 people that arrived the first year, there's only 60 of them left after dysentery, cholera, and fighting with the Indians and getting fucked up by them. But... Once they really start growing and whatnot, you really could start to see a divide, especially in, you know, like the property holding rights. And you can kind of see the argument behind that people that own property are going to be smarter as well or at least have some more skin in the game. But it also really disenfranchises a lot of people that would otherwise be your everyday neighbor. 
So here's a question. So African-Americans and women did not serve on juries until after they gained the right to vote. But if you're an African-American or you're a woman and you're charged with a crime, you have the right to a jury, right? right. But that jury is not going to be your peers. No. It's going to no. be no. 12 white guys that are just like, I've got property and you're going to get convicted. Well, that's a, you could argue the same thing with certain white men, too. I mean, if you're a poor white man, a lot of these people, despite being the same color as you, they're not going to be your peers. It's a classist thing, yeah. Right. Well, and that's why one of the most famous movies about a jury, 12 Angry Men, uh, that's why it was 12 Angry Men. That's all that was allowed to serve on juries. And if, you watch, if you've watched that movie, I think it was from the 1950s or early yeah. 60s, it's all white men on the jury. Yeah, you had to be there when America was created to see that movie, just like Brad. <laughs> I watched that movie in middle school. Yeah, it Man- may be. Mandatory watch. It's a great movie, though. Maybe if they still taught history in uh, the public schools, you'd, you'd admit on, on that one, Devin. Yeah, well, we read things like Of Men and Mice and shit like that, and How of to Kill a Mockingbird. Of Mice and Men. But of Mice and Men. Didn't mean to correct you. And To Kill a Mockingbird, not How to Kill a Mockingbird. <laughs> Both of you can fuck off. <laughs> It sounds like you paid a lot of attention to reading those. Yeah. <laughs> they were shitty books. Mice and Men, or Men and Mice, whatever the fuck it is, that was a good book. Fuck Mockingbird, though. That shit was stupid. Or, or Mockingjay, whatever it was. It was a Mocking shitty book. Mockingjay yeah. Bird. Yeah, it was a bird, and it was blue, I think, or purple. Uh, so we're going to dive into that issue a little bit and how the, the American jury came about to actually start at least and just to jump back so even in this the 40s 50s 60s 30s where these jurors were made up of all white men that owned property it was still better than what we had in the 1800s which was there was public officials they were called selectmen in many in many of the um, states that handpicked that went out and arbitrarily decided who to bring in for jury selection so was it was it good? Was it even close to good? No, but was it better than just uh, the the handpicked guy going to decide who was going to be on the jury? Yes. So there were improvements. So next, we're going to take a little bit of look at how it is the American judicial system and the, the jury system decided to integrate American or African Americans into our criminal uh, justice system. Back in the day, when there's in the 1800s. There's not a lot of historical records about juries. There's a handful of cases where you can hear about what happened in the case, but nobody's writing about what is the racial makeup of a jury. But the first recorded history of an African-American getting to serve on a jury happened in 1860 in Massachusetts. There were two African-Americans that were known to serve on a criminal jury, and it caused quite an uproar. Um, in particular, those many of you know that we... Um, we do this podcast from Indiana, and there was an Indiana congressman that had a famous quote, or it's become kind of a famous quote, in reaction to this shocking idea of allowing a African-American to serve on a jury. We're going to have Devin uh, read or play the part of this Indiana congressman. And uh, Devin, let's hear what this Indiana congressman had to say about some African-Americans getting in the ability to serve on a criminal jury. So he stated his astonishment that Massachusetts, quote, would allow a white man to be accused of crime by a Negro, to be arrested on the affidavit of a Negro by a Negro officer, to be prosecuted by a Negro lawyer, testified against by a Negro witness, tried before a Negro judge, convicted before a Negro jury, and executed by a Negro executioner, and either one of those Negroes might become the husband of his widow or his daughter. So keep in mind that at the time, this is actually bef- like just a year before the Civil War. And just by someone 
being in the jury that was African-American, this Indiana congressman goes full out saying that the judge is Negro, uh, you'd be arrested based on the affidavit of a Negro, a Negro police officer, prosecutor was Negro, Negro, like, witness, just everybody was black to him. And despite Indiana being above the Mason-Dixon line and fighting for the North on the Civil War, people that don't know this that aren't from Indiana, but we actually have one of the highest or had one of the highest uh, KKK populations and we had huge major sects of the KKK established here. And there's even places still pretty rural that you could find um, letters on people's door um, advertising the KKK. So despite the fact that we were above the Mason-Dixon line, we were on the north, we fought for the north, there were still a lot of racist ass fucks in this time. And you can kind of see that a lot in our history. And so the fact that there was an Indiana congressman who would say these things out loud, be super astonished at Massachusetts, and honestly just throw this completely outlandish claim and say that once these quote-unquote Negroes conspire to take down this white man, that then they are going to marry and have sex with his widow or his daughter. And so it kind of just shows that how deeply steep this racism was, because this was a statesman. This was someone who was voted to Congress in Indiana. And at the time, you know, Indiana, we were really country at the time. And the northeastern half of America has always been, especially the, the very upper corner, has always been pretty liberal even during the time. So the fact that this happened in Massachusetts isn't honestly too surprising at all. Um, but the fact that someone above the Mason-Dixon line would act this way and then turn around and fight for their freedom just just goes to show that, you know, a lot of these people, they were honestly still deeply racist by heart. And there was a lot of people that honestly had to vote for him in power to feel that way. And so they, they didn't necessarily feel happy of giving them the same rights as people. They just you maybe didn't agree with slavery or they just 100 percent agreed with Abraham Lincoln. Because of this, in 1864, Congress allowed for African Americans to testify in federal court and at the end of the Civil War in all state courts as well. This would have, of course, kind of st stipend the sort of racism that was going on at the time and would have caused more uproar. And, of course, now we know that during this time, this is when the KKK starts really becoming rampant as well. Um, especially after they lose the Civil War, because now they're going towards like sort of like a guerrilla warfare and trying to do like subversion behind the scenes because they know that they can't win a full out war. And even to this day, you hear people say the South will rise again. You see that racism that is steeped from decades and just constant like pressure from being racist by their ancestors and being this pressure of being a racist by their flag and their ancestry. So you see that it's still something that is still fully apparent today. And you can see just how seeped in society this would, was that today, you know, an Indiana congressman would say those things out loud, would say that just, you know, to his people that had elected him and even to another state and full out call them out as if he was in the correct. When, of course, nowadays that would completely lose your career. The thing that's, I think, just astonishing about that that statement, and I, I, everything you have to take into context from the from the time, obviously, but not that he took this idea that two black people serving on a jury all the way to the extreme that the that the black person would execute 
it's like this say this is all one black person. They're trying them, they're prosecuting them, they're judging them, they're convicting them, they're executing them, and then after they've killed them, they go over and marry their daughter or their wife. <laughs> you know? It's like that pervasive thought that racists have where they're just going to be completely overtaken by a race that is other than white and end up screwing their wives or their daughters and making a non-white, entirely non-white population and just basically turning the tables, doing to white people what white people had done to black people. Well, but also think of the absurdity of thinking, oh, I'm going to I'm – my daughter or my wife's going to marry the, the guy that executed me. I mean, <laughs> they're just taking – I mean – I, I guess you kind of look at how uh, today's politics are and the uh, uh, use of fear mongering. Yeah, uh, exactly. It's totally what it is. Right? Yeah. I mean, they got to know their they got to know like their clientele, their type of people that they're speaking with, their constituents. They're going to know that even if they may not believe this themselves, a good majority of their constituents will. And, and all he knew, right? All this congressman knew is that an African American had just served on a jury. Right? That's it. For that, all, yeah, that's for it. all he knew, this guy could have been like, yeah. Uh, Steve's guilty of public drunkenness. You know? Right, right. So, lying, lying to but his he, parent. Right. He, this guy definitely lied to his parent. I'm guilty. What do you guys think? So, yeah, that puts and it in the perspective. he took it to that extreme. He took it to that extreme, which shows how volatile this country was back then, right? And, yeah, and I think sometimes we can say even still is. Um, the, Devin, you mentioned the 1864 Congress allowed American uh, African Americans to testify. So think about that. Uh, they were allowed to testify in court in 1864. So... Not are you not being allowed to judge, be judged by your peers. Your peers, who may have been witnesses to whatever you're being accused of, maybe couldn't testify about what they saw. Um, so, you know, 1864 Congress makes a little bit of a positive step in that direction and says, hey, you know what? These people should at least be able to testify in a trial. Right. I mean, what do you do if you're a black person during this time? You're, co- you're accused of a crime, but all of your witnesses or other black people, you know, that could probably benefit you in some way if you really were committing a crime or if you're trying to be exonerated and you just have, you know, racist Cindy Lou who's right down the street and been wait, waiting for a way to publicly lynch you. Um, and now she can see that you saw, she saw you doing this abhorrent crime and because everybody else that was potentially around was black, they can only take her word for it. Well, think about that. Back at, Many times back in those days, the public lynchings were tied to accusations of, of rape. Uh, and it, very easily there could be false accusations made back then because it would the a, a white woman being raped by an African American would have been super shameful to her. So make an allegation of that, and then your only witnesses that may be you were actually uh, home or saw you with a with the white girl in a very consensual way wouldn't be able to testify. Right. Oh, what a what a time they were living in. That's oh, terrifying. I mean, it'd be a huge scandal, too, because you got to think of all the times where women were having consensual sex with a black man, and then they were caught, and they tried to say it was uh, rape to save their own skin and save right. their own, you know, facade of improper impropriety. So uh, you would definitely, to, to have another black witness say that this was all consensual, it would definitely be seen as absurd. And, of course, the racists at the time would think that they're just teaming up with each other. And so we, we jump ahead a little bit after the Civil War. This is when this issue really started coming to a head. Uh, a reverend by the names of, name of James Hood uh, proclaimed that the Negro deserved the right to testify in courts of justice and be represented in the jury box. So now that starts to become a little bit of the political di- discourse, uh, and that's where we start to see the tide turning. 
1867, integrated juries really started appearing in South Carolina. Between 1872 and 1878, African Americans actually made up about one-third of the juries in New Orleans. So think about that. Just three or four years before, they weren't able to testify in court, but you have just uh, you know some 10, 15 years into this, uh, you see three or four years later, you see a reverend that's demanding this right, and then 13, 14 years later, you've got New Orleans, uh, the, the area of New Orleans that is allowing or having juries that are actually reflecting their population. Because about in that time, the a population of New Orleans was about a third African-American. So this really starts to take some hold at that point. And just imagine how that would go if you're, if you know your city is mostly black or your precinct is mostly black. And how would you, how would you have a correct jury at that time if, if everyone is black that saw the crime? Like, how, how would there even be a witness against that or even on the case? How, how could it be someone that is a he said, she said, if there's only one he said and no she said? And additionally, you know, this is only like 15 year jump where in certain states you see monumental leaps that actually finally reflect the populations that they had. But it's noted that as late as 1876, which is a little bit before the 1878 where they were making up the third of the juries in New Orleans, in 1876 it was noted that no African Americans had served on a jury in Savannah, which is Savannah, Georgia. It was a huge uh, Civil War stronghold, largely known as a big battleground um, in the South, especially when the North started pushing in. And so it, it was really interesting, and it is really interesting to see that the fact that a lot of these southern states are still holding steadfast while some of them their black population is just so large because you gotta think these were these were plantations so for every white man there's like 300 black men the the disparity between whites to blacks is just too large and black people have to be able to testify and be a witness and be on the jury trial because otherwise how do you have due process you know actually be feasible you don't yeah well and you think of modern times now that uh, ge- geographically, Savannah to New Orleans seems like nothing, right? Right. And in just that bit of space, you have one place where African Americans are a third of the juries, and another place where they're not allowed to serve. Just think about the the times that they were in, and how just that little bit of distance, you know, one state away, can have such a different impact. Think of how scarring that would be too to know, to be like a free, you know, finally a free black man and then maybe you're accused of a crime and someone who's on the jury stand is someone who used to be your owner. Right. Like that would that would just be just fucking terrible. Like I don't see and how the, and the people that you were shoulder to shoulder with every day can't be on your jury. Right. Like right. I just don't see how that's accurately due process. Well, it wasn't. And it, 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 and so 1875, 1879 First, the Federal Civil Rights Act is passed, and then really the first significant legislation federally that puts an end to this is the Federal Jury Selection Act of 1879. It brought about the end of discriminatory application of those who could serve on a jury. So at that point, feds finally step in and say, all right, this doesn't make sense. We've said these people are free. We've said these people are to be treated equal. It's time to allow them to them at least sit on what is one of our most fundamental rights, which is... Uh, to allow them to sit on a on a jury. Keep in mind too that these federal acts make people fucking pissed, especially white people, which is why you really start seeing a rise in KKK. You start r- seeing a rise in public lynchings. 
um, people totally removing due process and taking the law, quote unquote, law into their own hands. People that were just accused being found tied to a tree and dead. And it's because, you know, their side of the war lost or maybe they were just on the wrong side of the Mason-Dixon line. They actually supported slavery, but they were in the north and they were fucking pissed about this. So these federal laws have been put in place. The um, idea that jurors should be uh, of your peers and, and make up a, a cross-section of society is, is at least in writing. But it really is still an application uh, can be very racist. The jury selection process, and even to this day, uh, this happens. But during this time period, it was happening rampantly that uh, prosecutors would use what are called peremptory challenges, which is challenges without cause, without any reason, uh, to strike African-American jurors just to strike them. And there was uh, uh, nothing you could do about it. You had a certain number of peremptory challenges. Every state's a little bit different. And those peremptory challenges are, hey, I just I just don't like this person. I don't have to really give any reason. I don't want them on my jury. So the application even post these laws, yes, they were in the jury pool. Yes, they were allowed to serve on juries. But the application was still a fairly racist application um, that was finally addressed. And it's hard to imagine it, but this is even after I know I'm a dinosaur, Devin. But after I was born, even after Bill was born, I think. Yeah, I was four. Uh, 1986, the Supreme Court came out and issued an um, opinion. That's called, and it's, a, it's a famous uh, opinion. It's called Batson versus Kentucky. And it said, hey, you know what? It's a violation of the Equal Protection Clause if you eliminate a juror based on race. Which is insane because that's only 36, 37 years ago. Yeah. And and we have what is now commonly known in the legal practice what's called a Batson challenge. So as a defense attorney or as a prosecutor for that matter, if somebody uses a peremptory challenge to say that you struck this juror based on their race, then it's on you to this person striking the juror to state a reason, a race, a non-race-based reason as to why you're striking that juror. Now, is it perfect? No. I'm sure they no, could come up still, with any bullshit reason. It, oh, yeah, it's still really easy to overcome. You can come up with any reason. Oh, I didn't like the way that person looked at me. So, or yeah, that he, person looked at the defendant, he, uh, or whatever it is. The, the juror works uh, in the um, golf industry, and I think that uh, golfers are uh, – not trustworthy because they spend too much time in leisurely activities. It can be something super silly as, as that. And so uh, is it better? Yes. Is it still an application perfect? Absolutely no. Uh, you know, Bill and I have tried a jury where with a, um, a, a black defendant in, in a somewhat rural Indiana town, and, and in comes the jury pool. There's probably, I don't know, 60, 40, 50, 60 people, and our client was black. There's one prospective black juror in the entire pool. And it's not a city that's not diverse. And wasn't that guy related to our client? Or Yeah. New, yeah, I think he was related to our client. New, so he couldn't serve. New client. So automatically they have one easy way to strike the, the, the one black juror. So certainly far from a, a perfect system in that regards. But we have made leaps and bounds uh, in, in that arena. And, um, you know, you, you go to, to jury selection and, and it is at least – somewhat more reflective in the pool of jurors that you're, you're picking picking on. Now, something that's really interesting in history, transitioning a little bit, when this was, when the idea of a jury trial was first came about, 
the purpose of the jury trial was to determine whether or not the person committed a crime. Yeah, resolve the crime, whether guilty or not guilty. It was it. There wasn't this idea of, you know, as, as we sit here today, 93%, maybe even higher, uh, felonies are resolved by a plea. That number is even higher for misdemeanors. Uh, 50% of our trials are tried to judges, so you can waive your right to a jury and have a judge make the, make the decision. At the time the Sixth Amendment was implemented, the idea of a bench trial was basically non-existent on a felony case. You were getting a jury. Uh, it wasn't even until 1930 that the federal courts allowed a bench trial. At the same time, plea deals. Plea deals were widely frowned upon and weren't something that happened very often at all, if, if, any, if at all. Yeah, they were in the 1700s. They were basically unheard of. Uh, in the 1800s, they were certainly very rare. And it's really interesting. If you go back in time, uh, during that time period when there was an occasional, what they would consider a plea agreement, it was ridiculed uh, by uh, the public. It was ridiculed by the public officials because they saw it as a uh, trampling of that such important right that they had. And so I think if you brought somebody back in the 1700s, or 1800s, and they saw how we resolve criminal cases today, they'd be shocked. Yeah, have them, have them sit in a, in a misdemeanor or high-volume court and just watch them freak out about what's going on. They were so rare that they were um, not just being ridiculed, but they weren't really even thought of. Now, in the 1880s, 1890s, there's some history that shows that there was a felony court, one single court, that tried six juries in a single day. Um, for those of you that aren't in, a, in the law profession, that, I mean, you just couldn't do that. Jury selection takes half a day, putting on the evidence. You, you could do a, a, an inefficient jury trial in one day. It was a low-level crime, but you certainly couldn't do six in, in a day. So the idea that there weren't guilty pleas uh, was still the case, but they're starting to morph into this idea that you can be a little more efficient. And so the, the, the trials start becoming what looks like a more of a perfunctory event. They're just um, going through the motions and a decision is being made quickly. Uh, I don't even think necessarily the defendant was even always contesting that they weren't guilty, but they still had to go through the, pro the, the process of proving their case. In terms of the uh, role of a jury today, they don't happen unless both sides are saying we can't do it. Uh, when you do a, a guilty plea, you have to do what's called a factual basis. So the prosecutor will take like, I don't know, 30 seconds to a minute and say, Your Honor, if this case was to go to jury, the state would prove beyond a reasonable doubt, blah, 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 blah. Uh, Mr. Defendant, is that correct? Yes. Okay. We can move on from... The, uh, the idea of having a trial, we'll find you have admitted and, and entered a plea of guilty. So I think in the 1800s, that early perfunctory trial was sort of that, but it's morphed into such a um, quick and um, efficient process that I think our founders would certainly be uh, turning over in their grave and say, hey, wait a minute, this right that we so hardly fought for and freedom that we wanted and everybody agreed upon was an essential right. Man, we've really let that slide. Well, you also, it's in, it's interesting to see because, you know, the later it goes, the more that that's willing to change. And 
the, the larger the population gets, the fact that plea deals start becoming more and more common and more apparent and even um, almost expected. And so it kind of just goes to show that at some point they had to do something more efficient. They had to do something different because people were waiting in court uh, or waiting in jail or waiting for their day in court way, way too long. And it just it stressed out the system. It stressed everyone out doing it. And the cogs weren't running smooth. The cogs weren't greased. So that was a very smooth, easy fix to kind of speed up the system a little bit more and allow people to have their due process happen if, much, if that much quicker. And so it's interesting because now even with plea deals and the right to jury, the fact that 93% of felonies are resolved via a plea deal, um, the fact that you could still you could be charged for a heinous crime and still not see your day in court for three, four, five, six days or years. I mean, three, four, five, six years. And so the fact that, I, you know, you wonder if something in the next decade or so or even maybe a little bit longer, if there's going to be something that maybe greases those wheels a little bit more or is government just going to and the criminal side of government that prosecutes the justice prosecution side if it just uh, is going to keep expanding and growing larger, and they're not going to find a more efficient way to handle these things. Yeah, and COVID sort of exacerbated that, really put a spotlight on on the current issues we have uh, with the um, the jury process and getting people into court in a timely fashion. Obviously, that's what has led to pleas. People are sitting in jail, and they've got an agreement with the state, hey, if you do this, you can be done. You know, a lot of people are going to bite at that apple. Yeah, so. especially if you're going to be sitting in jail for three to four years just waiting for your day in court. I mean, who? it'd be hard to choose one over the other when you just want to get out now, even if it does hurt your record a little bit more in the short term. And there's risk involved with both sides, right, for both the prosecutor and the defense attorney with the jury trial. You don't really know what's going to happen. So I've been both, and so has Brad, been a prosecutor and a defense attorney. And sometimes you think you have what is a great case, and like, how on earth could I lose this? And then you lose it. Sometimes you think I've got a great case, I'm, I'm for sure, uh, or I got a terrible case, I'm going to lose, and then you win it, right? So you, the, the they're unpredictable beasts. They're unpredictable beasts, and so that certainly uh, sometimes a safe route is a plea deal, and some, I mean, a lot of times that's exactly what the client wants to do. I mean, they're minimizing their risk. It's door A is a sure thing. Door B, which is a jury trial, you don't know what's going to happen, right? Anything could happen. Goes to show the hardest path is the path least traveled. Absolutely. Well, folks, that's our time for today. I hope you enjoyed our discussion on the history of the American criminal jury system. And uh, thank you for joining us again. And until next time, this has been Pocket Law Talks. Thank you. Thank you.